G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Uh, I'd like to begin with a few words um, from the life of Jesus, actually, not from 1 Corinthians 7. That is such a wild ride. We'll come back to that. Um, Two words. One of them very famous indeed. I'm sure you'll know it. The other one is a little bit more subtle, and it's just from the story of Jesus' life. Um, And these words describe, let me put it to you up front, they describe a beautiful life lived before the Lord in our broken world. I think these words describe a beautiful life lived before the Lord in our broken world. Uh, and that's what I'd uh, like to, to take away from these few words. There's, there's more than just that in these words, but I think there's at least that. Luke chapter 9, verse 22, and Jesus said, The Son of Man, that's his way of referring to himself, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. But then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. A beautiful life, lived before the Lord in our broken world. Um, The call to a Christian life, friends, Uh, It is not a call to a cushy life, to an easy life, uh, nor to a life that is lived in denial about the challenges of this world, but to a life that confronts, doesn't it, the reality of brokenness in our world and sadness and opposition and the brittleness of life, and yet displays this beauty there, as we see in the life of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so we read a little bit later, the second word from that um, chapter that I just want to draw out, Luke chapter 9, verse 51. We read, as the time approached for him, for Jesus, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, and by this point in the gospel story, we know what that means. He's just described to us the, the path that he must tread. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Or as Mark tells us uh, of the same event, Mark 10.32, Jesus was leading the way, right? Leading the way, resolutely marching on up to Jerusalem there, charging his way forward. The Son of Man must suffer Um, Folks, as I said last week, this series in Corinthians uh, takes us through seven chapters massaging the gospel out into the grittiness of life, out into all of life. All right, we've got it up here. What does it look like out there in all of life? Seven chapters of doing that. Uh, But I want us to begin this week with this image of our Lord marching up to Jerusalem resolutely, you know, carrying this beautiful life but in the midst of real brokenness and the brittleness of human life, I want us to begin there because I want us to be reminded from the start that there is such a thing as the beauty of a life well-lived, yes, in the brokenness of our world, and yes, even in brittle human life, but no, that doesn't pretend the hard stuff away, live in denial of it. Jesus knew the road ahead 
And no, doesn't become despondent or give up or try to stick its head in the sand. Here walks our Lord, you see, on the path of a life well lived, a life of purpose, a life of resolve. I want to say a life of bravery and courage and direction. And then do you realise what he calls us to? Verse 23, then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so from 1 Corinthians 7, and with that image of Jesus in our minds, let's attempt to answer this question today. How can we live a beautiful life before the Lord in our broken world? Shall we pray together as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, much of what goes on in our world is pretty grim. Uh, that's, that's true at the big level with the news that we hear that troubles our hearts, the news that we hear from around the globe, but it's also true of much of what happens in our own lives, uh, whether pains or a diagnosis or griefs and loss or battling with those besetting sins and our, our own disappointments with ourselves. And yet, O oh God, we see Jesus, this life lived differently. So teach us this morning, would you please, to admire our Jesus, to depend on our Jesus in faith and for forgiveness, to emulate him in our lives, here in your beautiful and yet broken, still loved world. And in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Just consider this for a moment, would you please? When we have money again, our church will definitely resume its place as a priority in our lives. If, if only he, you know, my husband, would sort out his spiritual leadership of our family, then I could actually live the way that Jesus wants me to. If only she was a bit more attentive, a bit more attuned to me as her husband then I'd be a more contented man, I'd be more level, I'd be frankly a more godly man. Just let me get through this stressful season, you know, exams, uh, assessments, or, or perhaps the, those, those early months, they're so demanding, so draining with little ones in the house. Just let me get through this stressful season and then my walk with the Lord will come back on track. You have no idea what it's like living with my parents they positively suffocate my Christian life. I cannot possibly get my Christian act together as long as I live under their roof. Maybe if I went to your school, I could follow Jesus, had your teacher, but not at mine, not in my class, not with my teacher. It is literally impossible. Look, when sport's done with for, for another season, of course I'll give my mind and my attention back to Jesus and the things of God and all the rest. My workplace, oh, you've got to understand it. It is thoroughly unthinkable to function as a Christian in my lunchroom and around my colleagues with the kind of tone that my boss sets. My spiritual life has plateaued in this church. 
I'm in this kind of stasis on this plateau, just sort of a flat line, and it'll stay that way as long as I'm in this church because everyone expects me to be a certain me, do you see? I just don't have room to grow. I need to go out, I need to reinvent myself. That is the next and necessary spiritual step for me. Brothers and sisters, have you ever found yourself longing, you know, wishing, thinking, perhaps even speaking, whether out loud or just in your minds, speaking as if your capacity to flourish in the Christian life depends entirely on the world around you. Uh, Welcome back to 1 Corinthians. Uh, I'm pretty sure that you'll have noticed a couple of things about 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, The the lens of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, or the the sort of the frame for its teaching, is very plainly, isn't it? It's sexual ethics, it's marital ethics, it's the, the what's and the why's and under what circumstances of marriage and sex and singleness and all the rest. But the principle, you see, did you discern a principle? What is the heart teaching of 1 Corinthians 7? As I put it to you, the teaching point of 1 Corinthians 7 directly challenges anyone who wants to say, when I change circumstances, then I'll serve the Lord. When I change circumstances, then I'll serve the Lord. No, no, says 1 Corinthians 7. The secret to a life lived beautifully before the Lord. Let me put it to us up front, is this, to borrow a phrase, bloom where you are planted. The secret to a life lived beautifully before the Lord is to bloom where you are planted. That's the secret. Uh, We're going to break it down for today under three headings, uh, three points. Firstly, bloom where the Lord has planted you. Okay, it's he planted you there, so bloom there, bloom where you were planted. Secondly, bloom for the Lord. Um, a beautiful life knows the one for whom it blooms. Uh, we aim, uh, we strive to be beautiful for him, uh, not even by our own measures or for our own ease, and certainly not for the expectations of the people around us and to satisfy them. No, know who you're blooming for. Bloom for the Lord, wherever you're planted. And thirdly, lastly, our third point will be bloom for the Lord where he has planted you, in the assurance that you belong to the Lord. That's where we're going today, in the assurance that you belong to the Lord. Because you know the price that he's paid for you. You know the life that he has in store for you. So cling to that assurance and strive uh, to live that beautiful, blooming life down here in our tragically broken world. Now, if it helps you to have a theme verse, um, some folks are helped by this, not everyone, but if it helps you to have a theme verse or a particular bit in the passage to uh, kind of wrap the whole thing around, verse 22, I think, is a very helpful one. Um, And get this, Paul is speaking to slaves, like actual slaves in the first century, And it's his expectation that they can yet bloom where they are planted, where the Lord has planted them as they belong. They can live a spiritually meaningful, beautiful life. Verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 7, For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man is responsible to God should remain in the situation God has called him to. What a remarkable 
picture. Shall we dive in? Firstly then, bloom where the Lord has planted you. And, and Paul initially, um, he implies it, doesn't it? He applies it in terms of marriage. In these terms, bloom where you are planted. In other words, don't try and bend the rules. Don't pine after better circumstances. Don't be looking over the fence to where the grass is apparently greener. No, a life of contented beauty, O married people, can be found right where you are, bloom where you are planted. And he gets very specific. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Let's take a look there together. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to touch a woman, is uh, what it says in the actual um, Greek there. We've talked about this phrase a couple of times together. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, literally, Uh, Your footnote might say that. If you've got an older translation, it will probably say that. Now, unfortunately, our NIV translators, who are normally excellent, I want to say, I particularly love the NIV translation, but they just happened to get this verse wrong. They took a punt. They didn't take a punt. They thought they were right. They uh, tried to translate that little bit of idiom there, that Greek idiom, what it means to touch a woman, and they thought it means to marry... Uh, Here's a much better translation. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. You see, that's that's a bit of a different meaning. (laughs) Now, have a listen to this, because as we come, we're in the very first verse, aren't we? And we're already uh, hit hit a little bit of a speed bump. Have a listen to this. We've got to get our minds back into the world of first century Corinth if we're going to understand its meaning for us today. Have a listen. In Paul's day, says this one commentator, in Paul's day there was a very influential debate raging about whether it was appropriate to enjoy sex for pleasure or inspired by passion, or if it was only appropriate when engaged in for the procreation of children. Evidence suggests many married Roman men regularly engaged in recreational sex, okay, the for pleasure, passion kind, with people other than their wives and only or primarily engaged in procreational sex that, with intent to make babies with their wives. There's the debate. This is a very strange debate to our ears, isn't it? There's the debate raging in the first century Roman world and the leaders from Corinth, it seems wrote to Paul, didn't they? Paul, we've got a church full of people here from all sorts of different backgrounds, Roman men, Roman women, Jewish men, Jewish women, whatever. We reckon, as the church leaders in Corinth, we reckon that it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That is good not to use a woman for sex. Verse 1, now for the matters he wrote about, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Right, Paul? Have we got that right? And perhaps it makes you wonder uh, today about the Bible's view on sex more broadly. You know, is Paul perhaps of the view that um, he might say, too right, in fact, you shouldn't even pursue sex for pleasure at all. It is just for uh, procreation, making babies. But no, take a look. Take a look at Paul's response here, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, for the matters you wrote about, It is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. I think he's quoting the Corinthians there. What does he say in response? 
But since there is so much immorality, each man should have, that's a euphemism, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body doesn't belong to her alone but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He's not shy, is he? (laughs) You married Corinthian men, I think this is what he's saying, isn't it? Content yourselves with the woman that you're married to. In fact, I think he's saying something much stronger. Let me come back to it in just a moment. Let's read on verse 8. Let's keep going. Uh, Now to the unmarried and widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am. Good for them to stay unmarried. Do you realise, friends, you are not deficient before the Lord. Your scope to bloom before the Lord, according to the Bible, according to Paul here, is not diminished if you are planted, at least for the time being, in singleness. Do you realise that? I think it's important in our culture to be able to say that. And, And have we found ways to get that message through especially to our daughters and our granddaughters. I will be proud of you whether you give me grandchildren or not. You are a complete person before the Lord, whether or not you find a man. You bloom right where you are and I'll be proud of you and I'll be delighted in you because I'm taking the Lord's priorities. Verse 10, to the married I give this command and and, and Jesus taught on this, a wife must not separate from her husband but if she does she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. Let me come back to that as well. Verse 12, to the rest I say this, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Let me ask you, Why would Paul even say that? Verse 12, to the rest I say this, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And then he flips it around to the other case. Why would Paul say that? Because, I presume, they know that Paul cares very much about sexual purity. They know that he's not afraid for calling of calling for radical action and they're looking around in their setting and they're wondering, wait, am I somehow impure because my spouse isn't a Christian? Perhaps my spouse is a Roman man and he goes down the road sometimes? Am I somehow impure? Does my marital circumstance stuff my Christian life? Am I messing my kids up? Do you see the kind of logic that might be running through a Christian woman's head there in Corinth who has become a Christian as a mature woman and is now wondering, what on earth do I do with my marriage? Am I messing my kids up? Am I ruining them? Is it possible for them to bloom where they are planted with a dad like that in the home? Have they even got a shot at a beautiful Christian life or do I need to break it off with this non-Christian bloke? Take the kids, go it alone. Don't be ridiculous, Paul is saying whether you're married or not, 
getting as much sex as you want or not, marry to an unbeliever or not, have kids to a non-Christian man or woman or whatever it is, bloom where the Lord has planted you. And so verse 17, nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Um, Folks, there's one more very important point that I feel that we need to make here, and and I'm sure you've felt it actually a few times, both as Gary read it to us before and as we've gone through and reread some of those verses on the way through. See, when we read Paul in light of the context of his day, When we read God's Word here, 1 Corinthians, with an ear that is sensitive to first century Corinth, with their culture and their struggles and their worries and concerns in mind, I'm convinced that we find, what do we find? We find freedom, we find relief, we find life, freedom for the weary and the worried and the conflicted and the weak. But, and this is very important, if you read these phrases, do you see, and rip them out of that context and shove them into your own, well, let me ask you, how do these verses sound? Ripped out of that context, shoved you into, into our own. Verse 2, each man should have his own wife. That's a euphemism. Verse 3, likewise, the wife should fulfil her marital duty to her husband. Verse 4, the wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband or for that matter verse 10 a wife must not separate from her husband did you wonder about those verses on the way through i think those verses become dangerous weapons when they are divorced when they are wrenched from their original context don't they paul's agenda do we see this in his day was to tell philandering men that, hello, your wife is your peer. She is your equal. She has every claim over your body and what you do with it and where you take it as you do over hers. Do you realise that philandering Corinthian men? Or is this this thoroughly radical thought uh, to the, the head of the family in their day? And so, men, save yourself for her. Talk to her about sex. Have sex with her just for the fun of it, but with her. Make decisions about your intimate life together as husband and wife. I think that's what the mutual consent of verse 5 is talking about. And that, O married Corinthians, is where contentment, where thriving, where flourishing can be found, not down the road (laughs) with someone else, not behind some other door, bloom where you are planted. But folks, here's the danger. Words spoken to empower women in ways that were thoroughly countercultural, in ways that were wonderfully liberating uh, in their day, deeply challenging to a tide of male dominance and patriarchy, do you see, can be carelessly applied to keep women today trapped in demeaning in dangerous, in even domestic abuse situations. So I just want to say clearly, men, you must never use these verses as instruments for control over her. Paul meant them for the exact opposite effect, do you see that? So don't twist scripture. And ladies, you aren't a failure if and when you ask for help. 
Do you realise that? You aren't a failure if and when you reach out and talk. In fact, I'd encourage you to. Your church and your leaders here, we are a place that you should expect to be listened to and heard and believed. And I want you to hear this. We are your church every bit as much as we are his church. We are your church every bit as much as we are his church. Did I say that right? Yeah. Bloom where you are planted doesn't mean suffer in silence. It doesn't mean keep a lid on it. It doesn't mean you're all alone. It doesn't mean you have to be stuck and it'll never change. Now, is that a heavier side? It is, isn't it? But we've got to say it from time to time. We've got to talk about it from time to time. Let's come back to 1 Corinthians 7. And I just want to reiterate, me as your pastor, but all of your elders, uh, we hear for you. Uh, and that's to men and women, I, I hasten to say. It's for all of us. 1 Corinthians 7, bloom where you are planted. Bloom where the Lord has planted you. Which is all well and good, uh, but there are times in life when your circumstances are going to change, where you face a change, where things are about to change, or you have a free choice to change, and you could go either way, and you have to make a decision one way or the other. Paul says, in terms of your Christian flourishing, it will make all the difference if you are clear in your mind about who you are blooming for. So don't just bloom where the Lord has planted you, but bloom for the Lord. Secondly, let's read from verse 25, uh, much more quickly now. Um, verse 25, now what do you make about this crisis that Paul talks about there in Corinth? Verse 25, now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy because of the present crisis. I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And if a virgin marries, she hasn't sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. Why is that? That's not normally how we think of marriage, is it? Those who are married will face many troubles. Why do you think he's talking about marriage in those terms. It's an odd way to um, approach it. It seems to me that Corinthian life is in a bit of a pinch. Have a look at verse 29. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I'll put it to you. So what do you make of this crisis that's there in Corinth? It sounds to me like Corinth is facing a short-term but nasty crisis. Is that fair to say? Uh, Paul knows that they're going to come through it, they'll survive, it's not the end of the world, but it ought to remind them that the world is coming to an end for this world in its present form is passing away. Uh, Bruce Winter has a bit of a theory on it. I don't know if he's right, but I, I said it before you by way of example. Bruce Winter, um, until recently, he lectured at a Bible college in Queensland. Great Aussie bloke. Uh, Bruce Winter has suggested that the present crisis being experienced in Corinth was, and I quote, dislocation in the city's life caused through a series of acute grain shortages and the attendant 
social unrest, which are things that we know of from other historical sources around about that time. He reckons that's what we're looking at. Acute grain shortages. Let's just run with that theory for a second. The threat of real food shortage, perhaps years of barely scraping by, maybe that's not a good time to get married, Paul is saying. Because with marriage comes kids in in those days. With kids, you expose mum and bub to very real risks, even to their very lives. Now, that would fit pretty well with verse 36, wouldn't it? Take a look there, verse 36. If anyone thinks he's acting improperly toward the virgin that he's engaged to, and if she's getting along in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But further down, verse 38, so then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who doesn't marry her does even better. You see, so Paul's not saying, look, wise, noble, godly Christian men the world over need to break off their engagements and try to go it alone. <laughs> no, he just means for a time, right? Let the crisis pass. If you can resolve it in your own mind, if you can weather the next few years, and then verse 35 gives the framework for figuring it all out, I think, although addressing a slightly different issue. Verse 35, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. I think that's what he's driving at. When you are faced with life decisions that could radically change your course, it matters more to Paul that you figure out who you're even living for. You know, are you chasing it because you have become engrossed in the things that will one day pass away? Is that why you're so driven? Or are you engrossed in giving your very best as you wait for the next world? Are you engrossed in the things of the Lord? Bloom in the Lord. Let's wrap up together. A man who believes that this world is all that there is, is going to feel trapped, is going to feel troubled by his circumstances because in a broken world, you are never going to flourish as you hope that you would. You are never going to bloom as you wish you'd been able to. A woman who believes that her blooming in life is down to her, that her worth ought to be measured by how brightly she shines, how radiantly she glows in comparison to her friends, is going to face each decision in life as a crisis because your very significance depends on it. But get this, even a slave in first century Corinth could rest in this, you were bought at a price. Even a young woman or a young man longing perhaps to be married could take comfort in this in the face of a crisis that threatened their very lives. You were bought at a price. Even a mother married perhaps to some godless Corinthian husband who didn't keep himself for her, who didn't have any regard for the spiritual nurture of her or her children, that mother could find security in this. You were bought at a price. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, this morning, and I want us together to treasure, to remember that you've been bought at a price. Not just in the sense that, oh, that means God owns you, he can tell you what to do with your life. 
No, you have been bought at a price in the sense that you now know that you are his, his treasured possession. He paid the highest price for you. He loves you. He will keep you. He will carry you. This world in its present form is passing away and may that not be a terror to us. A moment, a realisation of panic that drives us to strive all the harder to leech what we can out of life. No, this world in its present form is passing away. May that be a comfort and an encouragement to us to bloom where we are planted. Let's pray together. Our Father God in heaven, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we bring before you this morning our longing, our longing for a world made new, our longing to live lives of beauty and simplicity, our longing to live with purity and with peace. Infuse us, please, with the character and the resolve of our Lord that we might daily take up our cross, whatever our circumstance, that we might daily take up our cross and follow him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.